Welcome to Butter Living. I'm David Butterworth, and this is a podcast about health and about getting back to our playful roots. On today's show, we will be speaking with PhD endocrinologist, artist, and a person who I think is an incredible synthesizer of knowledge, a man who seems to have painted an elaborate and coherent picture of biology in a way that I haven't seen before. His name is Raymond Pete. Ray once wrote that once we begin to believe in the future, we understand the possibility of learning more and of being more. We appreciate the unexpected, and we even anticipate the opportunity to confront it. It is in the spirit of these words that I hope today's conversation inspires thought regarding some ideal future and how from conception to the first two years of life can be an instrumental period in paving the way for this ideal. I'd like to iterate before we introduce Ray to any listener that we are not advising you to do anything. We simply hope that you go out and experiment, explore, and wonder about life. But whatever happens, good or bad, Please do not hold us responsible. Hi, Ray. How are you doing? Hi. Very good. Awesome. Well, thanks thanks for being with us today. I, I think this is really cool. Um, as, a, as a kind of a casual way to start, I thought it would be cool for listeners to just hear what you've been up to today and, and what you have for breakfast. Oh, I, I usually start with... Uh, a glass of uh, cafe con leche, uh, a big glass with uh, uh, some very strong coffee in it, a couple glasses like that, uh, maybe some orange juice, uh, and then later uh, scrambled eggs, uh, usually with with cheese. So, so my breakfast uh, takes about three hours. <laughs> that's that's awesome. So you, so you put. You put some value, uh, uh, in other words, to, to how you start the day. Uh, yeah, it gives me time to take an hour or so for thinking what I'm going to do during the day. That's amazing. Ray, uh, I, I, I think it's undoubted that a lot of people who listen to this are going to be familiar with you. They're going to have read a lot of your work. But there, there are going to be some listeners who, who know nothing about you. Um, would you mind diving uh, pretty pretty deeply into your background and also maybe tell us why you're such a great person to listen to as far as uh, health and, and life. Um, I, I think it's relevant that I was born in the middle of the Great Depression and grew up hearing about oh, the, the Spanish Civil War, for example, and uh, Italy's invasion of of Africa uh, uh, and uh, then seeing the our, our neighbors included the dust bowl uh, immigrants into California uh, and uh, uh, so seeing uh, wandering homeless men uh, it was like a, a precursor to uh, Reagan's time uh, the, the seeing people on the highway with their their bedrolls uh, between 19, 
40 in 1980, that was rare, but in, in the Depression, it was a daily thing. Uh, and uh, uh, then uh, when the war got started, uh, our family moved uh, from Southern California to Southern Oregon. Uh, and uh, in uh, uh, the middle of the, the war, uh, I, we were sort of uh, cut off in Southern Oregon. Uh, I went to uh, the um, first, second grade in uh, the town of Grants Pass, <clears throat> but uh, from third to fifth grade, I was in a one-room schoolhouse outside of town, mm -hmm. and uh, we had eight grades in, in one room, so I could hear uh, all of the lessons. Uh, when I was in the third grade, uh, I would be hearing seventh and eighth graders' lessons. Uh, and that gave me uh, interest in the process of education, why, why they should segregate uh, grades. So you only heard, only had the opportunity to hear what uh, they were delivering to each grade. Uh, so uh, uh, we always had encyclopedias in the house, and I, I started reading about education, uh, learned about uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, he was one of my <clears throat> early heroes, uh, uh, and so I looked up uh, information about his school, his wife, Dora, and he started a school called Beacon Hill uh, in, in the 1920s. And uh, from reading about that, then I heard about uh, the experimental college at the University of Wisconsin, started by uh, Alexander Michael John, uh, and uh, from that I, I heard about uh, Black Mountain College, an experimental college also in the 30s, uh, and uh, then I got to junior high and uh, uh, discovered that uh, those, those experimental ideas in, in education had just sort of disappeared from the culture, and uh, what what was coming on in uh, really 1947, 48, and 49 was the establishment of totalitarian education in the United States. Uh, the word was pretty much invented to apply to the Soviet Union, but what I saw from that perspective of, of grade school and experimental education coming into the uh, late uh, 1940s, I, I saw that uh, things that I had become interested in, like Lamarckism in biology, which had been a big thing also at the University of Wisconsin, uh, a guy named uh, Geyer uh, did uh, things demonstrating Lamarckism. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I found that Lamarckism had been banned from education. Uh, so uh, when I got to my sophomore high school uh, uh, biology class, uh, I realized it was being taught by basically a, a, a kind of crazy moron. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I became extremely critical and, and skeptical of biological and political ideas, seeing, seeing that uh, the 
education had been cleaned up to eliminate any nonconformist ideas. Uh, at, at some point uh, in the 1950s, I was uh, very aware of the dangers of uh, atom bomb testing in the atmosphere, and, and so I uh, realized that Linus Pauling was the only well-known person uh, talking about the dangers of radiation. Mm. And and I learned that uh, an associate of his, uh, Terry Spitzer, I think his name was, at the Oregon State University, had been uh, first a, a very successful researcher and teacher, but he was fired by the president of the university for uh, uh, writing about Lamarckism. Wow. And uh, because of that, Linus Pauling wouldn't step foot on the Oregon State campus for 17 years. Finally, after the president had been gone for a while, he went back to give a talk. <laughs> uh, but uh, people generally don't appreciate uh, what a crazy culture we had in, in the 1950s. Uh, while I, I was writing letters to the editor of newspapers and such, and Linus Pauling was uh, giving talks, they took away his passport so he couldn't get out of the country because he was opposing atmospheric bomb, bomb testing. Uh, the government was supporting people uh, like John Goffman uh, to go around lecturing. The, the, the mood was to convince people that radioactive fallout might actually be good for you. Uh, one of the projects to study the, the uh, biological effects of radiation was called Project Sunshine. Wow. <laughs> and people who uh, occasionally someone, <clears throat> a professor or a government employee would say, hey, that, that stuff is really dangerous. And they would not only get fired, but there would be a campaign of character assassination. Uh, and in 1959, I was teaching biology at, uh, it was called Urbana University, functioning as a junior college. And uh, I was uh, teaching about the biological effects of radiation, among other things. And by chance, uh, a lecturer, I learned that he had been invited because they wanted someone who wouldn't teach about the biological effects of radiation. He had been invited to try out for my job uh, and uh, he chose to lecture on the biological dangers of radiation. <laughs> and uh, the weekend after he was there, he got fired from his job at the University of Illinois. And uh, he and I got together to campaign to create a college that would be able to talk about such things, that wouldn't have trustees uh, tied to the military research uh, and uh, uh, who, who could uh, freely investigate any subject they wanted. So uh, Leo Koch and I uh, started working on creating a new college. Uh, that uh, just, just as I was getting uh, things or organized and he was giving talks to recruiting students, uh, he got a job 
as a, a biologist at a, a mushroom soup company. So I was left to take over the the new college, which uh, we called Blake College after uh-huh. William yes. Blake. Awesome. And uh, the idea of that was to uh, get uh, faculty and students together, living together in a community, uh, and uh, uh, able to teach and study exactly what they wanted, uh, and uh, uh, with uh, 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 I, I and, and two or three of the teachers were the initial trustees of the organization, but we had it set up so that uh, both uh, teachers and students after they had been there uh, for, I think it was six months, would become automatic trustees. Uh, So there was no outsider involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but that didn't please uh, the U.S. State Department because at that time the the Vietnam Vietnam War was escalating. Uh, And uh, so they uh, cooked up uh, ways to intervene and, and shut it down. Wow. Uh, and uh, so uh, af- after that, I, I taught linguistics uh, for a year and decided that I would be more productive studying biology and, and trying to uh, recover some of the insights that had been shut out of biology. Uh, 40 years earlier uh, and decided to go back to graduate school in uh, biology where I had previously studied uh, literature and linguistics mostly. Uh, And that was how I came to be identified with biology rather than uh, literature and art and linguistics. Wow. And that was at the University of Oregon? Uh, yeah, I got my PhD there in '72. That's amazing, uh, Ray. Ray, thanks for that. That, that just gives us just, just such a good picture of, of uh, where you've come from. I want to jump right in to, to what we plan to talk about now, because I think we got some really good stuff. What would you envision as the ideal society or living environment 30 years from now? And, and I guess another way to put that is. If you were going to write a fiction, or, or nonfiction, I guess, about the world that you would want to live in 30 years from now, what, what might that look like? Um, what I did in designing Blake College was writing a fiction about what it would be like to have a place where you could do what you should be doing. And that's what I think living should be a matter of learning and exploring what we should be doing so that it's constantly in control of itself. And uh, in 1981, I started doing a series of monthly newsletters, and it was either my first or second issue of that that I wrote on the effects of the environment on the gestating brain and uh, I, I got interested in uh, the uh, effects of education and nutrition and environment, et cetera, uh, on, on the brain at an early age. 
uh, and that was uh, integrated into my attitude uh, towards free education that you shouldn't uh, set the curriculum from outside uh, the people who are actually uh, doing the studying. But education, learning, and brain development are a continuous process. It isn't a, a genetic apparatus of the brain, which is uh, then uh, stuffed with information. But learning and development of the brain is one single process. And unfortunately, the, uh, our language ties into a culture which ties into people who want to ma manipulate other people. And so as soon as we start learning language in that situation, the way language is controlled by institutions starts making us stupid. Uh, there have been a, a, a psychologist uh, compared his daughter's development with a monkey's development. And he saw that uh, as soon as his daughter began learning language, she was unable to solve some problems that the monkey at the same age could solve. Wow. Uh, showing that, that language uh, imposes uh, stereotyped ways of evaluating situations. Uh, and uh, that was why I was studying linguistics and psychology uh, in the 1950s and, and 60s before I specialized in, in biology, uh, seeing all the effects of the environment, uh, uh, cultural and biological, as shaping how we understand the world because the brain is, is constantly being renewed and revised. Uh, and uh, it, its course gets set pretty much uh, during gestation. Mm -hmm. But you can always revise its course on a, on a finer level uh, at any point if you have energetic support. And so the uh, imagining the, the whole situation, as you say, 30 years in the future, yeah. uh, as it's going right now, the whole situation looks like uh, life might not last more than a couple of weeks <laughs> if the Iran thing keeps going the way it has been going. But if that can be overcome, then everything else can, in writing fiction, can be overcome. So we'll assume that the institutions that are indoctrinating people and controlling, like the people who control Facebook and Wikipedia, mm -hmm. the institutions who impose their version of reality uh, through those uh, uh, internet institutions, if they can be eliminated, uh, uh, then uh, we, we can uh, consider the, the actual uh, physical limits to um, uh, brain development. And we already have levels of automation so that people really uh, don't have to work more than three or four hour, hours a week to have all of the food and, and practical uh, needs met. Uh, so that leaves uh, the question of what to do with uh, essentially 
uh, all of your free time. Right. And I think that uh, would spontaneously tend in the direction of uh, communication, interaction, invention, uh, and uh, moving on uh, to new problems constantly. That's amazing. Uh, what do you What do you think uh, you, you'll be doing in thirty years, Rhett? Uh, that sort of thing. I'm I'm hoping. Uh, oh. uh, getting getting things things going that are more interesting than the way uh, they've been going in in recent years. What do you mean by that? Uh, the um, there there are now uh, uh, new generations coming on, which are starting to be more critical of the existing institutions, uh, and uh, each generation is freeing itself from from the uh, stupefying conditions of the older generations, uh, and uh, so I think anyone who is listening to um, the events in the culture are, are going to be uh, participating in, ready to participate in whatever new things become possible. Uh, and one of my long-time definitions of culture is that it's uh, uh, the, the concept, the limits of what is possible. Uh, the culture teaches us that certain things are possible, and by definition, everything else must be impossible. Uh, so if you uh, simply change your mind, uh, the, the limits of what is possible uh, become uh, un undefined and very open. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Changing your mind is the essence of uh, living matter. Uh, the, the biology is changed by every experience. The brain is constantly in development, and that involves what you're learning. So what you learn changes your structure, and so your mind is changed, and so the meaning of what you learned has changed. Uh, you're, you're changing your past every time you learn something because you become a different organism. I love that. It reminds me of William Blake. Didn't he say something to the effect of the man who never alters his opinion is like standing water and, yeah. breeds, and breeds reptiles of the mind? Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing was why I was attracted to, to Blake, because uh, he, he sees the mind. Uh, one of his phrases was the intellectual fountain. Uh, I love that. Ray, let's uh, so so let's go back from this kind of ideal future a little bit um, to to now, and and to some of those behaviors and conditions from conception of the first two years of life that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, can you can you be more specific and talk about some of the the, the things that are that are so valuable in those first um, you know from conception to the first two years of life, and and how could how could really being thoughtful about about this beginning of life uh, essentially paved the way for a, a biologically energetic future. Uh, 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 <clears throat> a biochemist Stephen Zamenhof uh, experimented with brain development 
in chicken embryos, and he found that the the brain uh, stopped development at the same time as the uh, glucose reserve in the egg from the hen uh, was depleted. And so he added glucose or amino acids that could be turned to glucose to the egg. He, he waited the number of days uh, that he knew the glucose would disappear, then punched a hole in the egg and injected the glucose and showed that the injection of glucose allowed the brain cells to keep multiplying uh, right up until hatching. And those chickens had a bigger brain than chickens had ever had and were more intelligent. And wow. about the same time, Marion Diamond at University of California uh, was part of a group that was studying the effects of environment uh, on on the brain. Uh, and uh, it, it was very uh, Lamarckian. People didn't talk much about that. But uh, just by giving uh, rats an interesting environment instead of keeping them in a, a box, uh, just giving them some playground toys, basically, and, and a bigger box and a few other rats to visit with, their brains got bigger and their enzyme activity changed. And uh, the thing that least got talked about was that their offspring had bigger brains, bigger, more intelligent brains. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many generations that went on, but uh, over, the, I think I read that it was four generations they had seen a progressive uh, increase uh, in both the intelligence and the size of the brain. And uh, uh, during, during the same time, uh, 1960s mostly, uh, several other uh, types of uh, experiment and observation were made. Uh, uh, rats and dogs <clears throat> uh, both had their um, brain development limited by excess estrogen, which lowered their blood sugar, made the glucose less available. The glucose was essential for brain development. So uh, too much insulin or too much uh, uh, estrogen, which activates insulin, either of those would lower blood sugar and simply turn off brain cell multiplication. And uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids were uh, the other main thing that would stop brain development by interfering with the use of glucose. Uh, that, at the same time, uh, was being called uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, I forget the guy's name, Nick. Uh, uh, anyway, it was a well-recognized uh, principle that fats block glucose oxidation. And uh, so those three things were known to limit brain growth and intelligence. And the, the besides extra glucose simply being added, the uh, level of progesterone was the main thing that protected against estrogen and the excess uh, insulin effect. And to some extent, fatty acids would 
uh, interfere with the polyunsaturated fatty acid uh, blockage of glucose use. But uh, progesterone uh, uh, affecting the hormone balance uh, was uh, found to uh, produce this transgenerational uh, advance of the brain, uh, and uh, it would show up as ovarian increased activity supporting increased brain size and intelligence. Um, uh, having that in mind, I, I was looking around uh, after I got my PhD, looking around for uh, places uh, where uh, research could be uh, continued. I, I found that the, the Catholic University uh, in uh, Valparaiso, Chile, uh, had instituted, uh, they were about to institute a, a new a branch uh, uh, specifically to study the influence of nutrition on on brain development, and uh, I actually got a, a signed contract. Never did from another university, but I, I was uh, contracted to uh, direct that program, and so I was planning to go to Chile. But then the 1973 uh, Nixon Kissinger uh, uh, coup uh, stopped that whole project for 30 years or so. Wow. Uh, Ray, I have a couple of follow-up questions. Um, you mentioned the, the, the impact of progesterone just so so widely pro-life uh, in, in its properties. If, if, if someone were to, we're going to supplement with a, like a, a supplemental progesterone, what, what kind of dosages do you think would be appropriate in, in various contexts? Um, Catherine Dalton uh, in the 40s and 50s was treating uh, premenstrual syndrome patients and menopause patients, uh, but she had lots of uh, uh, patients suffering from uh, poor nutrition who also had uh, PMS problem. And over the years, she was giving them progesterone injections, and uh, after several years of having treated them just for their uh, current symptoms, someone said, it's interesting that your patients' babies are so superior intellectually, and, and Dalton said uh, that seems unlikely because uh, their uh, women with PMS are likely to have uh, uh, pregnancy problems, premature deliveries and, and stressed pregnancies. And uh, it's known that their uh, babies average a few points below normal IQs. And so she doubted that uh, the, the person was right in saying that their babies were superior. So she studied it and found out that all of the progesterone babies were academically superior, <laughs> just like the chickens. They had better brains for being exposed uh, to, to the protective uh, uh, metabolic regulator. Uh, and uh, I think she said they were typically around 130 IQs instead of 96 IQs as their older siblings untreated with progesterone. So it was about a 30 four-point improvement in IQ just, just for that one 
addition. Uh, she didn't uh, pay attention to their thyroid or protein intake or salt intake or any of the other factors. Wow. And, uh, knowing that, I uh, started telling people about her work, and uh, uh, at the same time, I had uh, realized that, that doctors had been totally indoctrinated with the idea that oral progesterone is uh, ineffective. People had used progesterone orally for uh, 25 years at the time, but by the 1970s, everyone thought they knew that you couldn't use progesterone orally, so they were giving it by injections. And the solvent used to inject progesterone happens to be neurotoxic, benzyl alcohol and benzyl benzoate were solvents that were used that were fairly toxic, killed, killed nerves. But despite that, uh, the progesterone was so nerve protective, uh, it still had those beneficial effects. So I, I looked for some way of convincing doctors to start using progesterone because not every woman wanted to have uh, regular injections. Sometimes the injection would, would cause uh, uh, the subcutaneous fat to collapse just mm -hmm. from irritation. Uh, so that was where I found that uh, it dissolved very well in, in vitamin E, uh, at which allowed it to be taken up with uh, fat droplets, the chylomicrons, which allowed it to get around the liver's uh, metabolic changes, deliver the unchanged progesterone directly to the bloodstream, where it would be delivered directly to cells uh, in the chylomicron form, and in the cells it happened that uh, uh, locally, right in the mitochondrion and other parts of the cell, the vitamin E and progesterone supported each other. Uh, vitamin E had an anti-estrogen effect at those subcellular, uh, intracellular levels, uh, same way progesterone does. So vitamin E and, and progesterone were synergizing it metabolically. Uh, and uh, so I, I was giving uh, th this mixture to uh, all of my friends who were pregnant. Uh, uh, another friend uh, was raising Afghan dogs, uh, uh, breeding them and selling them. And uh, she said that uh, Afghan dogs are typically untrainable because of their personalities. And she was treating, when a dog would have pregnancy problems, she would give them oral progesterone. And she said that the pups produced, not only prevented miscarriage, but the resulting pups had bigger brains and were trainable, uncharacteristic of, of that breed. Wow. And... Uh, I started collecting pictures of the babies resulting from these pregnancies, and they they looked very pretty and and healthy, but they were abnormally independent and precocious. 
same things that Katharina Dalton had noticed that uh, her her uh, patients uh, were outstanding in all of their academic subjects except uh, of the physical uh, uh, gymnasium classes and art classes because they they didn't uh, follow orders uh, very well. Uh, they, they were ver very independent in personality, uh, and so they didn't like uh, uh, regimentation of any sort. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the my, my friends with, with the progesterone babies uh, had all kinds of stories about uh, the precocious uh, things they would do. Uh, the, the most recent story uh, I heard about a couple of them. Uh, one of them, uh, I think uh, she, she's four years old. <clears throat> uh, she uh, had just uh, started a notebook. Uh, uh, the grandfather uh, told me that uh, she had written out uh, uh, in her notebook uh, some uh, pages with her older brother, her eight-year-old brother's name and the grandfather's name. Uh, and uh, had drawn uh, three lines under uh, her brother's name on each day and five lines uh, under her grandfather's name. And uh, he asked what, what that was for, and she said, I, I want each of you uh, to tell me, to, to teach me three new things every day. Uh, 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 he asked why, why uh, he had five lines and... Uh, her older brother had only three lines, and she said, "Because you know more than he does." <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, hey, Ray, I'm holding a bottle of my wife's uh, Progest D replenishing oil, and it says it's it's 1.15 fluid ounces for the whole bottle. Um, what are what are your thoughts as, as far as like how much, um, like let's say a pregnant woman would want to take? Um, each time she she took some of the progesterone. Uh, Katharina Dalton uh, divided her patients into those who had, in the whole pregnancy, received, I think, it was under uh, or around a thousand milligrams uh, divided up in her weekly injections, and those who had received at least fifteen hundred milligrams per pregnancy, and. The, there was a clear division in their uh, academic record. Uh, the ones that got more uh, were the brightest. So is there really like an upper limit? I mean, is it, is it pretty safe to, to consume? I, I think it, it's kind of a statistical thing. Hers was a clear division statistically, but when you look at individual uh, analysis of, of women who have the preeclampsia symptoms, uh, other people uh, studying them and watching the effects of progesterone found that in uh, about a third of the women with preeclampsia from the low thyroid, uh, high estrogen, and, and low progesterone, mm -hmm. about a third of them, one injection was all it took to get the system back to normal. and their symptoms were resolved for the whole 
pregnancy the, the following uh, the first, for example, they would, uh, in the first two or three or four months, they would tend to bleed cyclically, even though they were pregnant, showing that uh, the, 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 the placenta wasn't making enough progesterone to prevent the breakthrough bleeding, even though uh, there was a placenta developing. Uh, and uh, in a third of them, one injection was all it took to reestablish full progesterone production for the remaining part of the pregnancy. Uh, another uh, part, part took a, a second or, or more injections to get back uh, to uh, the, the stable condition. Uh, uh, so it varies. Uh, sometimes a, a single dose will normalize the whole pregnancy, but uh, to be sure, uh, I think it's best to check frequently to see if your progesterone-estrogen ratio and thyroid function are on the curve where they should be. Uh, progesterone should rise steadily in a healthy pregnancy uh, from uh, conception uh, straight up to the day before delivery or the day of delivery. Uh, and uh, if it steadily rises, uh, then it's at, at keeping it, its great excess over estrogen, so estrogen uh, can't interfere and stop brain development. Is that something that can be pretty easily tested? Uh, yeah. So you mentioned glucose being, being also one of these protective factors and so important to brain development. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so two questions. Are you saying sugar is okay for pregnant women? And also, um, can you give us some tangible examples of, of, of where they might get this, this glucose in, in their diet? Uh, yeah, uh, Tom Brewer uh, was writing about this. He had a newsletter for many years in the, the 60s, uh, and uh, he, uh, a couple of his, his followers uh, gathered together uh, his research uh, and others, uh, Shanklin and Hoden, uh, Child Health and uh, Maternal Nutrition was their book. The title came out in the, about 1965 in the original. Uh, but Tom Brewer uh, was campaigning uh, against the pharmaceutical companies who had indoctrinated doctors with the idea that they should control a weight gain during pregnancy. And to do that, they were selling their new and uh, uh, diuretic uh, chemicals to prevent water retention. And uh, along with the ideal, uh, ideology that uh, water retention and, and weight gain uh, were uh, harming uh, pregnancy, uh, creating a, a situation uh, similar to diabetes, uh, the drug companies uh, had indoctrinated uh, the idea that sodium went with water retention. So if you were giving a diuretic, you should restrict sodium in the diet. And uh, uh, Tom Brewer first, and then Franklin and Hoden showed that what they were doing was stopping brain development very prematurely 
by restricting uh, uh, salt in the diet or even giving a diuretic to make the body lose sodium faster. Uh, and uh, Tom Brewer uh, didn't emphasize sugar, but he uh, emphasized salt and protein. Uh, he, he showed that a protein deficiency was the main historical cause uh, of uh, eclampsia in pregnancy or toxemia of pregnancy. Uh, and that just making sure that they were getting, uh, oh, at least 100 grams a day of good protein, um, 130 grams uh, would, would be good. But uh, lots of pregnant women were uh, having only 30 grams a day of, of uh, protein, far too little. And uh, he, he, Tom Brewer, uh, wanted to assure that along with the protein, they weren't restricting salt, that they should uh, eat the salt according to taste. Uh, Shanklin and Hoden's book uh, uh, reported two experiments in Australia in which uh, uh, women with signs of developing toxemia were given supplementary salt uh, uh, apart from other <clears throat> changes of their diet. One group got six grams of extra uh, sodium per day. Uh, the other one, uh, I think it was um, 20 grams of extra salt per day. And in both cases, they were immediately relieved of the toxemic symptoms just by the salt. Uh, and the way the salt works uh, is to allow the albumin in your blood to uh, bind water and keep it in your bloodstream. Uh, low thyroid, uh, poorly nourished women lose, lose sodium uh, easily in the urine. Uh, thyroid uh, causes a, a proper level of, of sodium retention. <clears throat> and the sodium associated with the albumin uh, binds water, keeping the blood volume up, perfusing the kidney with this uh, good volume of, of uh, blood. And the kidney getting perfused stops sending signals that increase blood pressure. So eating more salt or being able to retain it by having adequate thyroid and progesterone function the sodium allows the kidneys to be perfused so the kidneys stop sending the signal to raise blood pressure. Uh, salt alone, in those cases, prevented the hypertension of pregnancy. Uh, I have, having read that, I suggested it to uh, friends with PMS who would retain water pounds, extra pounds every uh, PMS period uh, would be retained and then lost uh, again cyclically. And, and they found that salting their food to taste uh, stopped the cycle of salt craving and water retention. And then I told old, old friends, people in their 80s, who were having uh, problems associated with a low salt diet. and. Uh, Every, everyone I suggested that to uh, stopped having insomnia, 
and other symptoms associated with the low salt intake. Wow. It, Ray, if, if, a, if an expecting mom were to come to you and say, hey, Ray, what are, what are like six or seven foods that you would eat on a regular basis throughout pregnancy to support a healthy, resilient, strong, flexible, you know, um, organism? At least two quarts of milk, maybe a gallon, uh, preferably low-fat or 1% milk uh, uh, for, for protein. That would give you, uh, 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 along with other things, it would give you adequate protein. Uh, and uh, eggs, uh, two or three eggs a day. Uh, lots and lots of orange juice would be my emphasis uh, to uh, provide carbohydrate, which in itself uh, helps to lower the stress hormones. Uh, it act, acts on uh, various symptoms, uh, systems along with the uh, calcium in, in the uh, two to four quarts of milk per day. The, the calcium and sodium both uh, act to lower stress, and the, and the sugar uh, in orange juice uh, supports that anti-stress effect of calcium and sodium. Uh, keeping down inflammation uh, and and stress, uh, and the, those the, the stress hormones and inflammatory hormones are uh, what progesterone is uh, present uh, to prevent. Uh, so when you're doing these nutritional things, you're supporting uh, the effects of whatever uh, progesterone the system is making. Awesome. Would, would you be partial to, like, fresh squeezed orange juice over, like, store-bought orange juice? Um, I, yeah. Uh, it's important to get the sweetest orange juice you can. You don't want to uh, overload on uh, the citric acid that uh, some orange juice has in excess. So uh, good, sweet, fresh oranges are really ideal. You mentioned some of the, the really destructive effects of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids on, on fetal development, brain development for a young organism. Can you, can you give some um, some examples of, uh, I think some listeners might not, not know completely what, what exactly would be some examples of polyunsaturated uh, fats? Uh, all of the liquid fats, uh, safflower oil, soy oil, canola, uh, uh, anything that's, that's liquid, at room temperature uh, is questionable. If, if it's still liquid at refrigerator temperature, then it's really seriously toxic. Uh, at, at birth, uh, a baby, uh, a calf, for example, has a brain which is almost purely saturated fats. And a, a human baby, even if the mother has been eating a junk diet with a lot of uh, polyunsaturated fat. Uh, a human baby, by, by the current medical definitions, is usually born with a, a so-called essential fatty acid deficiency. Uh, it, it, that's a normal condition for uh, every kind of animal, for the, the baby's brain to be very highly saturated to the extent that uh, doctors will uh, say it's deficient 
in the unsaturated fats. That's because glucose has the main energy source for the developing brain in providing the energy for cell growth. It's also providing the substance to make the fats which are used in brain growth and other cell growth. But the brain is a very high-fat organ. But when glucose is the fuel permitting cell division and growth, it's also providing the substance to make the saturated fats and the omega minus nine unsaturated fats, which are intrinsic to our uh, own production. And uh, so the, uh, the presence of omega minus nine uh, fatty acids, which is natural in the healthy uh, glucose and progesterone supported brain development, Doctors have been taught to, uh, if they happen to test the, the bloodstream and find any of these natural brain-supporting uh, mead acid series, they're called the omega minus nine fatty acids. They're, they're taught to define this as a deficiency of their soy oil, uh, safflower oil, uh, PUFA uh, fatty acid. So wow. when when they recognize an ideal situation, they're calling it a serious nutritional deficiency, and they start advocating giving them a formula with added algae oil or fish oil or that sort of highly, extremely unstable polyunsaturated fatty acid, DHA, and the associated uh, omega minus three fatty acids. Wow, Ray, Ray, can you can you describe just briefly what happens when when a when when a non-saturated fat enters a human body? Why, I mean, why it's so unstable and toxic? Um, yeah, one of the arguments they're using to uh, sell fish oil, basically, is that uh, it has an anti-inflammatory effect. It interferes slightly with the uh, production of prostaglandins made from the omega minus six series fatty acids. So to the extent that you lower prostaglandin production, that's good. But uh, you, you get this anti-inflammatory effect, uh, but it goes with a suppression of immunity. It, it creates an immune deficiency condition because it suppresses the immune system. Uh, free radical uh, breakdown products are are toxic to the white blood cells, and so uh, you do get the good anti-inflammatory effect, but at the cost of immune suppression. And uh, people who have followed the, the actual course uh, of ingested uh, proof of the fish oil uh, highly unstable type find that as soon as it reaches the bloodstream, it's already in a, a, a mainly oxidized breakdown condition. So it's these breakdown oxidized products that are immune suppressive. Uh, and uh, a little bit of this material uh, is progressively incorporated into the brain, but the 
as as the baby grows, uh, it's diluting these. So the brain, by the age of 20, hasn't accumulated a great amount of the omega minus nine fatty acids. But after the age of 20, there's a steady uh, accumulation in the brain of the fish oil type fatty acids, which uh, when they break down, they produce uh, spontaneously without enzyme action, uh, they'll produce things equivalent to the prostaglandins, the pro-inflammatory uh, derivatives of, of fatty acids. Uh, isoprostanes and neuroprostanes are the two spontaneous uh, oxidative breakdown products of the omega minus six and minus nine series of fatty acids, and those do create uh, inflammation and degenerative symptoms. As as a, a calf eats a lot of grass, a little bit of it uh, gets through to its brain. So uh, uh, cows, uh, as as adults, do have uh, more PUFA in their brain than at birth. Uh, humans eating a highly uh, unsaturated diet, uh, even when they're growing, they their tissues are uh, absorbing and storing uh, some of these uh, highly unsaturated fats. And that storage it parallels very closely the slowing of the metabolic rate. Uh, a baby at birth has an extremely high metabolic rate and an extremely low PUFA content mm -hmm. in its tissues. And its learning ability is spectacular for the first few years, uh, babies are learning, able to learn language uh, several times as fast as adults. And that corresponds to them having a, a metabolic rate about two and a half times faster than an adult. But as their tissues uh, accumulate the, the proof of by the age of 20, their metabolism has slowed quite a bit. And uh, then uh, for the rest of their life, as they keep accumulating at a higher rate, the, the metabolic rate keeps slowing down uh, as the degenerative uh, conditions set in. Mm. Is it even possible for a, a, a young organism uh, growing up to stay in the more metabolic um, kind of kind of mode of existence and, 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 and keep tissue content of polyunsaturated fat low? I mean, can we do that through through, through what we consume? Uh, puberty is one of the things brought on. Uh, if you look at plants uh, in in the summer when a plant senses that uh, it, the water supply, for example, is, is deficient, it'll go to seed earlier than normal. Hmm. Uh, when I worked in the woods, uh, the foreman pointed out that uh, you could make a pine tree produce cones the following season by whacking it with an axe, it, it sensed danger and decided it had to reproduce. And puberty is, is similar. Uh, when the body senses that its metabolism is being slowed down, it uh, turns on the, the reproductive system. Uh, and uh, in extreme stress conditions, uh, kids uh, can be, start becoming uh, uh, pubescent 
well well before the age of 10. Uh, uh, lots of girls in the U U.S. are starting to menstruate at nine, some are even earlier. Uh, and in, uh, in some tropical areas of the world, uh, before uh, before industry was making them eat uh, soy oil, uh, the traditional diet uh, incorporated coconuts, and uh, lots of coconut fat was a staple of the diet. In these uh, areas, it was normal for girls not to menstruate at all until around the age of 18, uh, almost uh, twice the, the, uh, the, the years of proof of free development um, between uh, the, the uh, nine-year-olds in the U.S. and, and the tropical 18-year-olds. And, and uh, that slowdown of metabolism uh, corresponds to the increase of, of estrogen without proper uh, opposition by uh, the other progesterone and thyroid. And uh, so it, it sets up uh, premature uh, degenerative diseases menopause, uh, cancer, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, and so on. Unbelievable. Well, so, so, so uh, would, a, would a nice little approach be to keep stress low, cook our eggs in coconut oil and butter, and get a lot of sunshine? I mean, would that be a, a, a nice little way to approach that? Uh, yeah, yes. Sunshine is an extremely important factor. Uh, uh, I've learned that in, in tropical areas where people have the opportunity uh, for sunshine, uh, culture has uh, taught them to cover up so they don't turn dark brown. Uh, and uh, I've had friends uh, at uh, w within uh, lower than uh, 20 degrees uh, north north latitude uh, who avoided the sun so thoroughly that they were vitamin D deficient. Uh, and uh, the, the deficiencies are more extreme and uh, universal in the high latitudes up around 40 or 50 degrees north. But it, it isn't at all uncommon, especially the Muslim countries where women cover up uh, as much skin as they can. Uh, they, they are extremely likely to be uh, seriously deficient in vitamin D. Uh, uh, calcium intake to a great extent can make up for the uh, partial vitamin D deficiency. Uh, sugar helps to make up uh, for a, a calcium and vitamin D deficiency because uh, part of the effect of vitamin D and calcium is to uh, keep the energy system, the metabolic rate, uh, working at a good high level. Uh, uh, so combining the uh, good calcium intake, lots of carbohydrate, and lots of sunshine, uh, those are, uh, apart from the amount of PUFA in the diet, those are uh, good uh, protective insurance against degenerative diseases. Awesome. Now, speaking of sugar, carbohydrates, um, there are certainly some trends I think that people think are healthy 
like keto, ketogenic diets and intermittent fasting or even just restricti- restricting sugar. Um, would you be willing to comment on, on, on the effects that these kind of diets might have on a developing fetus? Uh, uh, yeah, some some of those fad diets are based on experiments in rodents, and one of the things people uh, usually get wrong about uh, mouse and rat studies is that they are nocturnal animals, and when you're studying them in the daytime, that's the time they uh, normally would be sleeping, and so they're uh, if you're bothering them in the daytime, that's a special. Uh, intense stress for their systems, hmm. uh, and so uh, people tip, typically get their uh, metabolism upside down uh, as far as stress and estrogen and such go. Uh, the uh, darkness itself, uh, not, not related to the uh, the sunlight and vitamin D production, but just the absence of environmental light. Uh, turns on the stress hormones. Uh, Partly that's because the the red component of light has an an electron uh, quenching effect. It calms excited electrons that have been uh, put into that excited state by inflammation or or, uh, uh, metabolic uh, inhibitors uh, such as the, the fatty acids. And the, uh, one group of experimenters uh, put a tube in, in the veins of people uh, who were uh, uh, in, in the sleep experiment, found that uh, in everyone, every 15 minutes of darkness, the cortisol level increased, uh, rising to a peak around dawn, uh, and then the sunlight would lower it. But they, they found that uh, it, the, the, uh, if they could go to sleep uh, during the darkness, the rate of cortisol rise was was slowed, so that darkness is stressful, increasing all of the stress hormones. Uh, but uh, sleep is our our defense. Deep sleep is the best defense. But uh, when when stress and malnutrition have lowered your hormones. Uh, for example, a hypothyroid person uh, typically doesn't get in, ever get into the deepest phase of sleep, and so sleep isn't restorative to, to the proper extent if your thyroid or other hormones are low. Uh, and uh, the, among the stress hormones are the hormones that regulate sodium and, and calcium. Uh, one of the reasons those minerals are so protective is that sodium inhibits the rise of aldosterone from the adrenal glands, and calcium inhibits the rise of parathyroid hormone from the parathyroid glands. And these normally, along with all of the stress hormones, uh, rise during the night. And aldosterone and parathyroid hormone interfere with mitochondrial energy production the same way polyunsaturated fats do, uh, intensifying the problem of hypothyroidism or glucose deficiency. Uh, 
and uh, just by having some salty soup, for example, at bedtime, or some source of, of sugar, <clears throat> or a big dose of calcium, for example, a glass of milk at bedtime, the milk with, with its uh, protein and, and sugar will uh, help to inhibit uh, the, the rise of the parathyroid hormone and the cortisol. Uh, the salty soup, uh, it, especially if it has a lot of gelatin in it, uh, the glycine and the glucose and sodium uh, will help to uh, prevent the rise of aldosterone, uh, preventing these things from uh, blocking the energy production uh, during the night and uh, lowering the stress hormones. Uh, in a study of rabbits in Leningrad, where the nights were very long, they found that as the night progressed, the form and function of the mitochondria deteriorated. Each hour, they would sample mitochondria. And by after about eight hours of darkness, the mitochondria first would swell and start to malfunction. Then they would collapse and extrude their ingredients uh, disintegrate and uh, absolutely stop functioning. Uh, and uh, things that, that maintain the glucose supply uh, and prevent the, the, the blocking hormones from rising uh, will prevent that deterioration of mitochondria during the night. Uh, uh, night and, and winter are where the, the most aging degeneration takes place. Uh, the, the parathyroid hormone, uh, especially when, when your calcium intake and vitamin D are low, uh, the parathyroid hormone uh, takes calcium out of your bones to uh, make it available uh, for other uses, but uh, it, it tends to create osteoporosis. So if you measure the urine calcium content it, it, in women around menopausal age, almost all of their daily loss of calcium taken out of the bones was in the morning urine. Uh, night was almost fully responsible for the, the development of osteoporosis. Uh, and that that's because of the uh, the, the rise of parathyroid hormone. Uh, but similar things uh, happen to the, the other hormones, uh, taking down uh, different tissues. Uh, protein uh, tissues are atrophied during the night. Wow. It, in the context of all these amazing things, Ray, that you're talking about that can protect against the stress of, of darkness, what, what what would you say, or what are your thoughts about uh, a pregnant woman, or really any anybody, staying up late with a laptop computer on their lap or a cell phone in front of their face, uh, surfing the internet? Oh well, the cell phone and the, the the whole environment that is supporting cell phone use, but especially having one near your your head or your uh, torso or pelvis. Uh, uh, that's a, a, a very important factor, uh, and it has, uh, like like the other 
harmful influences that are being uh, sold by the industry, uh, the, the, uh, the various uh, uh, telephone, uh, uh, radio, television uh, industries are, are doing pretty, pretty phony studies uh, claiming that uh, radiation uh, of, the, of that sort uh, is completely harmless. Uh, already in, in the uh, 1950s, they were saying that if the radiation doesn't increase your body temperature or the cell temperature, then it can have absolutely no no effect. Uh, but uh, that was based on on the crudest sort of uh, basically uh, science-free bio biological doctrine. Uh, all, all, already uh, early in the 20th century, uh, biologists have been demonstrating uh, great sensitivity uh, of cells to even weak electrical or radiant fields. Uh, a, a Russian, uh, Yuri Holodov, uh, demonstrated that the gonads and the brain are the most sensitive for our, our tissues, but these are seldom uh, the ones that telephone companies uh, test for, for radio sensitivity. Yes. And uh, the, the way of measuring uh, the reaction, uh, if, if you are only looking for one kind of reaction, such as a mutation of DNA, uh, then it's going to take a tremendous amount of <clears throat> energy to produce that within the time that they are uh, observing. But, uh, for example, uh, the, the nuclear radiation from atomic bomb testing uh, or uh, various uh, medical x-rays, for example, uh, they would give a certain dose of x-ray or isotope poisoning uh, and say, well, we didn't see any mutations, uh, maybe some uh, minor DNA breaks, but uh, no functional mutations. But uh, they were uh, limiting their observations to the cells that were directly exposed and to the uh, time immediately following the exposure. But when you uh, look at the organism as a whole, as Yuri Holodov did, extremely weak X-ray poisoning, gamma ray poisoning, or isotope poisoning will change the whole organism, shrink the brain, uh, change functioning. Uh, the bystander effect refers to the fact that radiation can seem to totally bypass the DNA, absolutely cause no mutation in the cells you're exposing, or, or only a small uh, uh, change. But those cells, having been poisoned, will, even years or decades later, will continue to be in a destabilized state so that the rate of mutation is higher. So-called spontaneous mutations becomes higher when the cell is in this irritated, excited state. And one cell, having been irradiated and excited, emits substances such as 
um, like physical activity for a pregnant woman or, or you know exercise? Do you think do you think there's some that, that could be helpful rather than harmful for a mom and her baby? I I think just pre pre activity, whatever feels good, uh, muscle uh, exertion uh, helps to lower cortisol when it's uh, free and uh, pleasurable uh, muscle exertion. Awesome. You, you've done such a good job, Ray, I think, of, of, of really coming up with some specific and tangible ways that a, that a the woman or a family can can uh, can help bring a, a, a young one into this world in a way that the, that, that, that the developing organism has a chance to be strong and resilient and adaptable. Um, I wanted to I wanted to get a little bit more general here before we close. And uh, I, you mentioned Bertrand Russell earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently read a quote. I actually have have it pulled up here. Um, he said, "When you want to teach children to think." You begin by treating them seriously when they are little. You give them responsibilities. You talk to them candidly. You provide them privacy and solitude. And and you make them readers and thinkers of significant thoughts from the beginning. That's if you want to teach them to think. And I just thought in in, in kind of in light of that and in light of the fact that you said you grew up um, in, in many ways being inspired by Bertrand Russell, um, can, can you speak to if – a, if, if parents came to you and said, um, how can I raise a child in, in this day and age um, so that they inhabit a future down the road that's safe, that's full of life, that's full of wonder, um, what, what kind of message could you, could you send to, to parents? Uh, exactly what Bertrand Russell said. Uh, it, when I lived in Mexico, uh, I noticed that – uh, kids were very different from uh, how kids were being raised in the 50s and 60s in the U.S. Uh, the idea of childhood w- was, I think, uh, Piaget, the psychologist of, of child mentality, uh, had convinced people that you should give kids age-appropriate in- information that went right with the, the regimented regimented idea of uh, education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in Mexico, I, I noticed that it was very common for adults to treat children as little little adults. And uh, I really liked kids in Mexico. Uh, they were little, redult, little adults who were fully responsible and uh, could be communicated with. Uh, in the U.S., uh, Kids seem to be progressively getting crazier, and I, I think the uh, U.S. culture is uh, uh, contributing. Just the cultural component is contributing to autism. Uh, if you communicate with uh, little kids right from uh, the earliest stages. Uh, Maternal in Mexico, for example, babies typically were carried in a rebozo attached to the mother's body, uh, so that there was constant touch and movement. Uh, the former uh, NIH developmental psychologist James W. Prescott uh, studied different cultures uh, and found that cultures that were relatively free. 
of violence and cruelty had, uh, from a very early age, uh, touched and and uh, held and moved their their babies around continuously. Uh, where uh, in the U.S., touching uh, has been kind of institutionalized uh, away. Uh, babies were isolated from their mother at birth, sometimes for hours, uh, and denied immediate skin contact. Uh, Ashley Montague uh, argued exactly what James Prescott uh, did in his study. Uh, Montague uh, wrote a book called uh, Touch, Touch or Touching, uh, a very good anthropologist uh, view of, of mental development. Uh, and uh, continuous with that physical stimulation is uh, people talking both to each other with, with an adult vocabulary and talking to the kids uh, uh, right, right from infancy to start treating them as adults. Uh, Years ago, a girlfriend of mine had a kitten that had just been weaned, and she was talking baby talk to it. And just kidding her, I said, how do you expect such a little kitten to understand baby talk? You have to enunciate very clearly. And so I said to the kitten, Aphrodite, go look at yourself in the mirror, which she had sort of slurred in baby talk. Cat, the kitten looked at me, ran over to the mirror, looked at itself, got back up, uh, and she said, oh, that was just a coincidence. It was possible. Uh, and so several times after that, in the next several weeks, uh, she would uh, say, uh, cats can't understand English, especially how could a, a two-month-old cat uh, understand those words, and she tested me uh, increasingly ridiculous things. Uh, uh, one was uh, around Christmas. Uh, there were trimmings of a Christmas tree on the floor, and uh, she challenged me uh, uh, to uh, say, uh, why don't you tell the cat to uh, pick that up and go look at herself in the mirror? And I told the cat to do that in clear English. The kitten looked at me, went over and grabbed this bristling fur twig, looked like a giant groucho mustache, and <laughs> went over and looked at itself in the mirror holding that twig. Kids, I'm, I'm sure kids are at least as intelligent as kittens. <laughs> Uh, and so I think people, right from uh, the day of, of birth, I think they should uh, start talking to them. I think you you fit, you you go right, just totally naturally right into my last question, which is how how, how might uh, play uh, fit into all of this in terms of uh, connecting the, the present um, with the, with the that, that ideal future that you that you kind of started with at the beginning. Uh, what was the first part of the question? Your voice uh, faded up. Oh, sorry. Yeah, how not, how, how might play um, uh, uh, factor into all this? I mean, I mean, it seems to be such a such an integral part of a of, of a developing organism, of learning, of of of, of evolution. 
Um, so, so how might how might play fit into all this? I, I think everything should be play. <laughs> uh, the the um, uh, studying. Uh, you need to to think of of play as a, a property of life, uh, and uh, it's a type of thinking, thinking and brain development. Uh, and so, if you want to solve a problem in physics, you have to play, at least mentally, uh, play around with all kinds of things, play with objects, uh, investigate things playfully. Uh, it's an attitude. Uh, that w without which you don't have science, you have uh, dogma. That's wonderful. I love it. Ray, Ray, do you want to add anything to, to what we've talked about? Oh, nothing occurs to me right now. Where can um, a listener read more of your work or contact you directly if, if they wanted to? I, my my uh, website, raypeat.com. Okay. Awesome. Ray, uh, I, I, I actually don't know how to say it enough, and, and I, I certainly don't have the, the probably the appropriate words, but it's been just a, a pleasure hearing you and, uh, and being able to, to do this with you. So thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Have a great afternoon. Okay. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye.